This podcast conversation is another in a line of many about the academic journey to food. Listen to Sarah Fouts tell us about her journey and the special similarities between Baltimore and New Orleans. Speaking about food trucks, it's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Sarah Fouts, Assistant Professor, Department of American Studies, and Director of the Public Humanities Program at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Liz. Glad to be here. So tell me something. How did you get into food? Oh, that's a big question. So I, what I do is research you know, f- food studies and labor studies within uh, the, the work I do, uh, mostly focusing on New Orleans and Honduras. And that interest came from working with really kind of thinking about how food is an important part of immigrant communities. And I was started working for a nonprofit in Kentucky, and I would my title was bilingual liaison. And I would work with newer immigrant communities to help integrate and build programming for them to to be more integrated in the city and of a small town in Kentucky. And they were mostly tobacco farmers or people that worked in tobacco farms from Guatemala and Mexico and then other kind of construction, kind of immigrant labor. And one of the things we did was build a food festival. So we did it for two years, um, two summers, and just kind of had you know different representation from all these different uh, communities um, in Latin America, Honduran, Mexican, Puerto, well, um, Caribbean communities, and we just put on a big festival. Had great publication in the newspaper. All kinds of people came out, and so that got, made me really think about this kind of diverse foodways within this kind of monolithic Latin American or Latino term. And then when I came to New Orleans for graduate school, I did an urban studies program at UNO. University of New Orleans, and part of it was David Barris, who's a food anthropologist, was one of my professors and really kind of helped me cultivate this idea of thinking about food in the context of post-Katrina immigrant communities, mostly Hondurans, um, and that really kind of, that, that started, was the impetus for a lot of the bigger kind of more academic research questions that I had um, in that work, so that's the story. <laughs> <laughs> and so did you find that you had been interested in food at all beforehand, or did you just kind of decide as you were uh, beginning your work career that uh, that food was just the right vehicle? I was very interested in food growing up. I didn't cook a lot, but I had a mother who was a not only a great cook, but she also worked in a restaurant as a hostess for a place called Science Hill Inn, and it was kind of a high-end dining southern food and I also had a grandfather and grandmother who were at a restaurant in eastern Kentucky, in Hazard, Kentucky. It was called Don's Restaurant. So I always kind of was around people who worked in restaurants and, and food and kind of that culture and that kind of pride in food. But I, you know, really didn't think about how it would serve myself as like an academic or as a working in. I didn't want to work in the food field, but I was very interested in food as a cultural aspect and you know and and also 
being from Kentucky, like thinking about the bourbon industry kind of is in its boom now. And when I had gotten back to Kentucky in around 2009, 2010, really thinking about, wow, this is really kind of a branding of a state in this way that, you know, bourbon's always been part of it, but it's also been kind of this really interesting way of thinking about, you know, food and beverage in a place and, and how that's mean, what that has meant to me in that time. So a lot of different angles, I guess, but I guess what I've really been focusing on lately is like this immigrant food. Um, and so what are you working on right now? So currently I'm finishing up a book project that is coming out of my dissertation work. I did a PhD in Latin American studies at Tulane. I graduated in 2017 and kind of turning in that dissertation project into a book uh, manuscript. I do eth- ethnographic research. So I've worked for worked for a long time with a group called the New Orleans Workers Center for Racial Justice, and they have a group called the Congress of Day Labor, so workers, immigrant workers who have kind of fight for their right to the city. And they, coming out of that, I, you know, thinking about, you know, the role of immigrant workers in Katrina recovery and, and, and kind of the, those industries, but also kind of the foods that followed the immigrant workers, and that's the focus of the, of the project. So the different taco trucks, the flea markets with all these food vendors, different restaurants that have opened up and, and really established in the city and created space and created kind of this new cultural, in some ways new cultural, in some ways very old kind of cultural impact in the city. So I, you know, really kind of think about kind of how we can think about a city through spatially and through food and, and really kind of thinking about how, you know, it's a majority, New Orleans is a majority black city. Where do these immigrant communities fit? How have they, what collaborations have been forged and so those are kind of the big questions that I'm teasing out in the book. So. And so tell me about this project that you also are working on that compares street food in New Orleans and in Baltimore. Yeah, so that's something that's, you know, kind of in the early stages is looking at, so now that I'm based in Baltimore and I really do miss New Orleans and get down here as often as I can, but I have been very much like encouraged to build out kind of these links between the two cities which are, you know, both port cities, majority black cities, both, um, you know, kind of have these rich histories. Um, You know, even the snowball is represented in Baltimore and in New Orleans, which is is very interesting to me. So I think a lot of the questions that I ask, you know, about New Orleans and and thinking about, you know, these impacts of these kind of global cities in these different ways resonate with Baltimore as well. And there's just so many parallels between the two places. So I would love to build, you know, kind of think about, uh, you know, kind of the angle that we're going for right now is like kind of street food vendors and how they make space um, in both places. And and the big project that we're focused on here in New Orleans is um, uh, black and brown, black and immigrant street vendors and, and, and how they've, uh, you know, gone from having these hustle economies to being able to uh, kind of have maybe more formal establishments or they're still, you know, kind of just having pop-ups and things like that. So what, what are people doing around food that are kind of defying the, the, the brick and mortar um, uh, kind of model and how are they pushing against it? And, and also how does it help them kind of build uh, mobility to be able to access, you know, capital or, or what, whatnot to have their own brick and mortar space. So that's, you know, kind of what we're looking at. And then also the structural issues of, of, of um, being part of the, those communities and having access to, 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 to the city in different ways. So the city of New Orleans has a long history of street vending, both vending actual produce as well as food that's already prepared. Right now we have at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum an exhibit about brunch. 
and it starts with Rose Nico and talks about standing at the St. Louis Cathedral after Mass when people used to have to fast from midnight so that they could receive communion, and she would sell coffee after Mass, and they could stop and have a cup of coffee on the steps of the cathedral. So it really goes back far, far here in the city to have uh, street vending. And there are all those stories about Kala, the rice fritter that was sold on the street and was so important that people who were enslaved, who were selling it, were able to buy their freedom. Uh, so it, it's, it's a strong history here in New Orleans. Is there a similar history to that in Baltimore? Yeah, I do. There's a lot of, you know, kind of parallels in the same way of, of different food histories. I think the one that is came to mind uh, most co- immediately was, um, and has been really kind of important during COVID um, times too, are the A-Rabbers. Um, and they're, it's a black um, Baltimore tradition. It goes back early 20th century, if not late 19th century, of selling food on horseback, or sorry, wagons, carts carried by horses that go through town a lot um and and it's mostly produce and so there's there they have their stands in east baltimore where the horses are are kept the stables i think that's a more formal term and then they have their their wagons with all the fresh produce and they just go around to the different neighborhoods to get you know and there's you know a big uh issue with food um apartheid or food deserts in that city especially in, in divested neighborhoods majority in different areas in the city and so they they have served as this really important resource, not only historically, but contemporarily to bring foods to people in communities that are underserved or, or or kind of, you know, uh, there's not uh, investment in those areas. And they've also were very kind of integral into a lot of the dissemination of of during COVID, like what to do and what not to do. So they were not only these food vendors getting food out in an important time, but also disseminating important information about the pandemic. And I would imagine that a lot of those neighborhoods didn't have transportation, so it was very difficult to get out yourself to go get whatever foods you might need. Yeah, absolutely. So it was yeah, it was access in, in all these different ways, right? So historically, like how do you get, you know, how, how can you best serve um, these, these different areas? So, yeah, so it's really neat that they've been able to carry on uh, these traditions in these different ways. So I do think that there's a lot of parallels, you know, it's a different medium of, of serving food, but it's, you know, similar ideas of, of access. So, of course, the street vendors who sold produce in New Orleans, there were those special cries that they, that they had where they spoke in um, different languages and had wonderful rhythms to whatever they were selling. Some of them, of course, were in English, but were there something similar to that in Baltimore? Do you know? I think, uh, I, I don't know. I think there are, you know, just the different calls that you hear when they're coming down the street, but I, not, I don't know about the linguistics of, of, the, of what, what terminology they're using, right? But you can hear, you know, the sounds, you know, the, the, the cityscape of the horse hooves on the, on the ground, and that is loud, very loud. And so it's neat, you know, sometimes the, uh, they'll come into other neighborhoods too, beyond just East Baltimore. So, or sorry, West Baltimore, this is happening in West Baltimore. I misspoke. Um, so yeah, you can, and when you see the Arabbers in, you know, maybe North of the city and or North of, of West Baltimore and, and station North is one neighborhood where I saw them not too long ago. I was like, huh, but it's, it, they're, they are kind of very kind of regional within the city of where they, where they stay. But, but in terms of 
the calls. I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, uh, the, you can go to the Smithsonian site and listen to them just on your computer, and it's really amazing. Yeah, and the specificity of them and how much the things cost, and just wonderful. Right. So, what is the difference between that kind of sale that is distributed to people's homes through the streets? And delivery of milk or, or ice or any of the other things that used to be delivered. How how do you make a distinction or is it actually the same? I mean, I think I what I would say is you have a much more... Delivery of ice is not, or, or milk or, or whatnot, is kind of not in necessarily indi- indicative of some sort of divestment, right? I do think that these A-rabbers and a lot of the folks here that are doing this outreach in these ways are in specific neighborhoods for specific reasons. So I do think that that, especially in a more contemporary context in Baltimore, you do like they, the A-Rabbers still exist because there's still a need and there's still, you know, this demand um, to get foods in these neighborhoods where there aren't grocery stores, where there aren't, you know, corner stores that have access to, to healthy produce, et cetera. So I do think that that's kind of more of a, a right. It's not this like, you're, you're, you're delivering everywhere. You're doing a very specific targeted space. So that would be. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so do you think that you're doing some of this as part of the public humanities program? So how does that fit in? I, th- so with that, I, this is something I would like to build as part of that. So we're doing a project in Baltimore. I'm teaching a food ethnography course this spring semester and really excited to be kind of getting to know. I, I've only lived there for three years and two of those were COVID time. So it's been hard to do quote unquote field work or just, which is just really in my opinion, getting to know people who work in food and are doing interesting things. Uh, so I am uh, starting to teaching this course that uh called food ethnography where we're working in a neighborhood called highland town and that's in east baltimore and that's where the majority of immigrant food food restaurant workers and food vendors are living historically it's very much um, an italian german polish uh neighborhood Uh, and then since like the 1990s it's become a lot of central american and mexican dominican communities have have established place there so we're gonna, I'm working with a group called Southeast CDC and, and with my public humanities students and with my Department of American Studies students to do a documentary project there where we're working with restaurants and, and street vendors, um, I think mostly Honduran and Mexican and one Dominican uh, guy who has a corner store. So we're, we're you know, kind of getting this more contemporary history that's not really told, right? We get lost in a lot of these kind of European-centric narratives of, of place, but we want to, you know, kind of think about these and kind of reframe what, what's behind this contemporary context, right? So that's what we're working on as part of the public humanities um, uh, program through UMBC. And so it'll be documentary, getting, getting students a lot of uh, experience in the field doing, working with people and not just in the archives or not just in the books. So we're, you know, kind of develop those, those qual- more qualitative um, components. So one of the things you talked about is dealing with this on a contemporary basis and not be stuck in the past. Um, it's very interesting to me. I just finished a book that's coming out in March called Nonna's Creole Italian Table. And one of the things that happened as I was interviewing people and uh, 
trying to put together my own past and my own experience growing up in the Italian community in New Orleans, all the people that I talk to have this very ossified idea about what it is to be Italian, and it bears no resemblance whatsoever to being Italian today. And I also know that the neighborhoods um, that used to be Italian, which really aren't anymore, but um, the the feelings about the neighborhood from people of Italian descent are that this was their neighborhood, and that was many, many, many years ago, and there seems to be a difficulty in experiencing what's happening there today because it interferes with their memories uh, that aren't even necessarily accurate, but what they think their memories are. Um, I, do you experience that? I mean, because not everybody is a new immigrant. Even people from Honduras and Mexico and other places could have been here for a very long time. Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's an interesting question. And I'll, again, focus back in this Highland Town neighborhood. Because there is Di Pasquale's, which is a, a pretty well-known uh, Italian grocery store and restaurant that have has been in this neighborhood, in Highland Town neighborhood for uh, almost a century. And they have recently moved to a much more gentrified, well, like commercial space in Southern Canton. Um, and so they, you know, where does that, I think it's an interesting question of like, oh, like they no longer see themselves in this space that they've, you know, that's like historic. It's a beautiful, it's amazing. It's one of my favorite places to go uh, and get groceries during the pandemic in particular. Um, and now they've like moved to this entirely different neighborhood where they have less of an identity, less of an attachment um, to that place, right? Historically, mm-hmm. um, I don't, I can't speak on their attachment contemporary, but so it, I think that's interesting that, to see how you have this like fixture leave a space and how much is it because there isn't this Italian, uh, I mean, they kind of made that name in that neighborhood and it's more kind of immigrant um, from Latin America. Um, it's more kind of represented. So I, I don't know the answer to it, but I do think it's an interesting question of what that means, right? And you have a lot of Italians in Little Italy across the the country have left Little Italy, like I'm thinking South Philly, I'm thinking Baltimore's Little Italy, and you do have the restaurants, right, the, the establishment, the, the spaces, and, you know, oftentimes who's working the kitchens are, are Central American and Mexican immigrants, right, who's, you know, frequenting those as tourism, right, because mm-hmm. it's built up this name as, as mm-hmm. a place, right, but who, no, those folks aren't living there, mm-hmm. right, they've gone to the suburbs, right, and developed, you know, built these other types of lives outside of what, you know, was part of so essential. So I think, you know, it's such an interesting question, um, and I think it resonates. It's not just particular to one place. I do think we see this across a lot of little Italy's, per se. Well, not even Italy's. Little right. Italy's. It's, it, I mean, I think you could make analogies to Germanic, um, Germanic, people of Germanic heritage and different communities that are very Germanic or Swedish or whatever. And they all seem to have, as I call it, ossified. I'm sure there's some technical name for it. (laughs) They've kind of kept a certain identity of what it means to be Swedish that has nothing to do with being Swedish today. And so they've really lost the connection to Sweden and it's all about maintaining this old identity, which I, f- I find that really interesting. 
that um, they they didn't keep up with the country itself anymore. They just keep up with the idea, and they keep they keep the old idea alive from generation to generation instead of looking to the country today. I I think I think almost all immigrants do that. Right. Yeah. So they're trying to kind of maintain this kind of what they were told, kind of these narratives, yes. um, rather than kind of a, a adapting to what. And not know. having a firsthand understanding of it. It's, this is what my grandmother told me, this is what my great-grandmother told me, or my parents or something. And that's, that's the truth. The truth of what's happening today in that country is not really relevant. Right. Have you seen um, Martin? Martin Scorsese's documentary called The Italian American. Yes, yeah. yes. And that's what I think of is like how she's talking, the mother, right? It's just to give listeners a background, it's like his pa- he's interviewing his parents in their apartment in Lower East Side, I think. Mm-hmm. And he is, um, you know, and the mothers, they're both very gregarious. And she's the whole purpose is she's going to teach him how to make the meat, the bolognese or the meatballs. Um, and he, and the red sauce and, and, the, but they end up talking about everything else. Right. And, and a lot of it is like painting that picture of the neighborhood and, and who's there and, and representations, but also talking about when she would go back to Italy, right. Or, 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 or when she was thinking about being back in Italy and, and, uh, you know, the, I, I think I had a, a, a longer point here to, to your comment, but it was, it's, a, I think it's a good representation of how you, you create this image of a place Right, even you know, and how that is carried on, and how it's discussed, and well, the big thing she talks about was the um, a lot of the trees that were that were brought over, right? But I think we do it even without that sort of European or other countries um, background, because I I find myself talking to my children and my grandchildren about, oh, well, there used to be a such and such here in New Orleans. And um, so even the image of what New Orleans used to be, and there, there is a website called Ain't There No More, you know, <laughs> all of that sort of thing where people are already lamenting changes in the landscape and other things about losses in New Orleans. Right. And so New Orleans is not being looked at today except as what it's lost from the past uh, assuming that somehow that was better. We seem to do that a lot. Right, right. This nostalgia, this yearning for what's not there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do that. I left a city four or five years ago, and I still am like, oh, this place used to be here, right? This is how I remember it, <laughs> right? And this city has changed so much since, you know, I lived here for about eight years, and, you know, in that time, like, I can still say, oh, so, you know, and I'm not that, you know, I don't have that much attachment or memory of the city, but... Um, so yeah, I do think that's like part of, you know, we want to connect in a way, right. And how do we maintain these connections when everything is just constantly changing at such a fast pace and, and things like that. So, and so we find other people who sit there with you and go, Oh yeah, I used to go there. Right. So we build nostalgia, nostalgia memories together and that's what we can attach. Right. So I don't even think you have to leave your country to do it. Exactly. Yeah. I think you can do it just, just from, from your armchair. Right. A block away. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you see on the horizon for you and in food studies? Yeah, I, I, 
think it's an exciting time and it's an exciting field to be a part of um, that's that's had some great like people laying down the foundations and really thinking about you know what you know how can we have these more these really important discussions about um, people and places and how people make space and how, you know, I think a lot about political economy and, and, and policies and how that can also shape and how you're constantly kind of people, new pe- new groups of people or people who have been here for a long time are constantly having to kind of contend with, you know, this recreation of different cultures and as, as new people come in and, and, and leave and how, you know, these different, uh, quote, creolizations of, of food spaces. So I am excited to, to, to be able to kind of, be part of this kind of growing field um, and think about these questions in different ways. Uh, and I, I guess next projects, um, I still feel kind of in the throes of the current project. So it's, you know, but you always have to have the foresight. I, you know, there's a couple his, like out of the dissertation, there's stories that I didn't get to tell that came into the book. Cause I tried to focus the book more than the dissertation was kind of everywhere. Um, but there's some historical, um, uh, kind of looking at like early Mexican immigrant immigrants in New Orleans, right. Who definitely don't get talked about. Right. But how, what was, what kind of food spaces were part of their process? So there's a Bernardo Hernandez who was a tamale vendor and he, uh, you know, went from selling food on the streets and he worked in the kitchen as a chef and on Bourbon street, but, you know, came to the States as like in working on the railroads. Um, and then how he kind of created all these different uh, with his wife, Rosa, they made all these different um, or opened up a bunch of different restaurants across the city, right? But where does, you don't, when you think about New Orleans in the 20th, mid-20th century, you don't think about Mexican food, right? So how was he, what did he do and he and his wife do to adapt their menu to be able to, you know, kind of maybe not be seen as a Mexican restaurant, be seen just more as a uh, New Orleans restaurant. So I would like to kind of de- build out that project, which I have a lot of the foundation for and, and, and publish on that. I wanted. I'm really interested in disaster food, um, <laughs> how people get fed in times of disasters. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned before I'm from Kentucky, so the tornadoes just just devastated um, a lot of um, Western Kentucky, and so I, you know the big thing that I kept looking at was like all the p- folks that came in with their their food trucks or their grills, and they set up and they were you know some folks were selling food, some people were just grilling food and giving it away. But how are people? How are people working? You know, you have these third sector groups like. Red Cross and et cetera that are feeding food. You have the federal government that that will pay caterers to make box lunches. But you know what are these kind of grassroots economies that are getting people fed and doing this you know really important work? And you have World um, Central Kitchen. Is that, is that a, yeah Cent- yeah World Central Kitchen. Yeah, you know, and you have these kind of bigger philanthropy groups. But I'm thinking about like people that are actually they are making money off of this work and they're serving foods that are efficient and filling and culturally. Um, relevant to the people that are doing a lot of the work. So, I, you know, potentially like a disaster food kind of focus project, you know, how people are getting fed in those scenarios. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question that just popped into my head while you were saying that. About New Orleans, and you were talking about the Hernandez family and what did they have to do to be a popular restaurant in New Orleans, even though they were serving Mexican food. So... Why is it that you think in New Orleans the food that people are eating is just absorbed into our cuisine and it starts to be something that we just consider our food? Whereas in places like New York or other larger cities, food remains quite separate and there's not an overall cuisine. 
Right. I do. I, I mean, New Orleans definitely has, you know, you're going to see the menu and you know it's on the menu. Um, and so what, you know, I think the tamale is an interesting uh, kind of food that has been kind of adopt, you know, kind of recreated in the South, the Mississippi Delta tamales, New Orleans tamales. Zawali tamales. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's interesting to think about, right, if he's, if Bernardo was selling these tamales, he opened up a tamale factory in Central City. Uh, so what, you know, how did he kind of brand that food in particular. I'm like, I've been tracking the Honduran, Honduran food is where my real specialty or where I know a lot about. I'll say that. I don't want to say expertise, but in uh, that, um, so thinking about the baleada is like the taco of Honduras or it's like the burrito of Honduras. And so I was like, well, when did, you know, and usually I go to newspapers as my so times pick. So I was like, when did we first start talking about the Baleada in New Orleans, and it wasn't until like early 2000s, pre-Katrina, right? It was the first mention that I f- I found. I'm not going to say it. I I could have missed something, but I was, you know, just going through in the newspaper archives, um, and so you know, thinking about well, how will, will the Baleada? Because there is a long Honduran, you know, migration tradition in the city from United Fruit Company, right? Is will the Baleada be integrated into the city or into menus in a way? Uh, that like enchilada, or not enchilada, sorry, the tamale, tamale has. has. Yeah. So do you think that one of the reasons you found it difficult to find a mention is because it wasn't ever listed as an indexed word? Yeah, I, I yeah. Not, oh. not that it wasn't, it wasn't something that people were aware of, but, you know, it may have just been a Honduran dish and not actually specifically talked about by name. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I did what I did was just search term baleada, um, and then I did do Honduran dish. You know, to see what and I there's just a dearth of you know kind of mention of that even in the Spanish language newspaper that was in the you know popular in the mid 20th century. So, La Voz Latina and like that. You know, I just haven't found um, kind of more of a mention. But yeah, not till I think 2003 was the first. Wow. And yeah, it's a it's new, amazing. it's not like a, like it's a 19, I think the origin is like 1960s coastal Honduras is like when, so it's not that old of a dish, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't have like. Um, it's not going to be in the 19th century newspaper. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it is, if you, in Honduras, I've done, I do, I've done research down there a, a few times and you, it's ubiquitous everywhere. You know, you have your Baleada vendors all over in, in, in the corner stores in the fancy restaurants, street vendors. At home, people are eating baleadas. Um, and here, too, if you, you know, you go to a lot of the food trucks and you'll have, it'll be, you know, a, maybe a Mexican food truck is selling baleadas. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there are enough people from Honduras here to make that worthwhile. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. And that, that brings me back to the question of how our food gets all integrated here in New Orleans. And it may simply be that we are too small of a city to support something that remains relatively pure. Right. Um, like in New York, you're going to find food from all sorts of different regions of the same country that is very, very separate. And, um, and maybe it's because there, it's a large enough place that it can support it unchanged. Whereas here, you're saying, I'm a Mexican food truck, but I'm going to sell a baleada because it's going to increase the number of people who eat here. Right. And 
it's something that you might have to do to adapt. Right. To, just to the population. Yeah. And I, th- you know, you have me thinking like it's also less enclavey too here in the same ways that like you do have these, you know, especially for uh, Julie Weiss is a professor who wrote a book, Corazon of Dixie. And she has a chapter where she focuses on um, New Orleans kind of Mexican history. And she, you know, talks about how there wasn't, there isn't really a Mexican neighborhood, historically in particular. And I think even now, I mean, you do have like Kenner, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, kind of uh, where you can find a lot of different Central American and Mexican foods. Uh, but you don't really, in the city, maybe mid-city, you know, around Bienville and, and is, um, you know, kind of neighborhoods. But, you know, I think that's part of it, too, is you don't have these, like, long-standing cultural neighborhoods. It's just, it is too small of a city in a way that... Um, it's hard to, you know, kind of build out. Um, but, yeah, but that's an interesting, yeah. I, I always go to think about spatial analysis uh-huh. of this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being on Tip of the Tongue today. And uh, we look forward to your books coming out. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.